Hello everybody, this is our third sermon looking at the book Song of Songs and today we're in chapter 3 starting at verse 6 and reading through to verse 1 of chapter 5 and the title for this sermon is Marriage and Sex. Today we arrive at the centre of the Song of Songs. And what do we find there at the beating heart of it all? We find a wedding, the great public declaration of love and the making of a covenant commitment. In the Bible, marriage really is the culmination of romance, the goal of ever-increasing intimacy. For two weeks now, we have followed this couple's relationship developing. It's been a roller coaster journey with many highs and lows on the way. In week one, we had the initial impulse of attraction. The young woman fell head over heels in love. But very quickly, that produced a profound sense of vulnerability within her. Would she be loved in return? How should she make her move? Fortunately, the young woman got some good advice from her friends and her insecurities started to fade as she got to know her man. In chapter one, there was talking and compliments, proud arms placed around lovers' shoulders and supportive embraces. Everything was slow and measured, but this romance produced the sense of security required for love to grow. In week two, we read of their betrothal and we were delighted for them. But again, we soon read of anxiety. Despite having made a profound commitment to one another, they still needed to spend some time apart. This separation produced sleepless nights for the woman as she worried about all the things that could go wrong. But in the end, she did come to value this period of engagement for she knew hers and her lover's desire for one another was greatly increasing. So now, after all this, as we begin the third part of this great song, we finally reach their wedding day. And there is so much to look forward to. Sadly, marriage today does not always seem to generate the same levels of excitement for couples as we find in Song of Songs. In fact, marriage often does not get very good press at all. Statistics tell us that since 1960, the number of marriages in the UK has halved and the number of divorces has increased fivefold. Currently, 40% of marriages end that way. In 1960, only 5% of couples would cohabit before marriage. Now it is over 70%. There really has been a sea change in the nation's values in this area, and it has happened in a relatively short space of time. We could try and analyse what the reasons for this might be. One of them might be money. In the UK, £470 million worth of loans are taken out each year to pay for weddings, with the average big day costing £17,000. Sadly, people look at marriage now and think they cannot afford it. Another reason might be the way marriage is so often portrayed in soaps and TV dramas. Almost every year, EastEnders and Coronation Street have a Christmas special where a marriage implodes and the worst rows are always between wedded couples. A third reason seems to be some very popular but very faulty logic. People move in together to see if they like commitment 
before they then decide to commit long term. They fail to see that that form of commitment is utterly flawed from the start. Commitment with a ready get-out clause is not commitment. This then is a very false test. But I don't need to tell you all this, you know it already. We will all have friends and family who have taken up one of these positions. Of course, Song of Songs is going to fly in the face of such cynicism about marriage and celebrate it as the wonderful God-designed gift to humanity that it really is. And I hope this will be refreshing and heartwarming for us all. But just to build the anticipation a little more, let me share with you one last statistic from recent marriage surveys that may interest you. Married Christians rate the pleasure of their sex lives higher than any other demographic of people. It appears then that the way to truly get the best enjoyment out of sex is to really understand what marriage is all about. Permanent commitment really enhances our pleasure. And Song of Songs is not bashful about this at all. The wedding day that we're about to think about rightly culminates in a wedding night and all that that entails. So let's now get to the text and find out more. It is said that on the wedding day, every bride is a princess and every groom a prince. After all, on what other day do ordinary people get to throw a banquet and invite the special guests that they want? Where else do the set-piece events of a whole day place two unassuming human beings at the centre of attention? A few weeks ago, we were delighted to celebrate the wedding of Andrew and Anna here. On that day, we excitedly waited for them to arrive. We watched them eat at the top table. We listened to their speeches. We observed them cut the cake and have their first dance. And through all this, we applauded them at every opportunity. We know Anna and Andrew. They're normal, humble people. They don't crave the spotlight. But this was truly their royal day. As it happens, it's been this way for thousands of years. Evidence from Jewish writings tells us that back in ancient Israel at the time Song of Songs was written, the bride and groom wore crowns at their wedding, even if they came from humble backgrounds. Now, the reason I tell you all this is because it explains the opening six verses of our reading, which were all about King Solomon's wedding rather than the couple we've been following through the song. We know that the couple in our story are poor. She had tanned skin from the long hours she spent labouring in a vineyard. He worked tending sheep. There is simply no way they could ever afford such a grand affair as Solomon's big day. Yet in the run-up to their wedding day, they either choose to sing a pre-written song about the king's wedding, or they use the imagery of Solomon to try and communicate a little of what they are feeling as their special occasion approaches. Poor as they are, their wedding will be the grandest day of their lives. In comparison to hard labour, they will feel like royalty for the day. And do you know what? There's nothing wrong with this lavishness at all. A wedding should be something to look forward to. It should be a grand social occasion. It's the one day when extravagance is excused. Why? Because the public nature of a wedding is very important. Weddings are public rather than behind closed doors because the couple are declaring for all to see that there is no embarrassment in their love for one another. 
There is no shame and there is no holding back. They're totally committed to one another and want the world to know it. On their wedding day, a couple invites their local community to glory in their love with them because in the days ahead, they will need that local community to recognise their relationship and support it. A wedding day should be then full of hope and promise for the future. Just before we move on to the next part of the text, there is one other thing that needs to be said about chapter 3, verses 6 to 11. The poetry of Song of Songs is very clever. And there is an intentional irony here that we're supposed to pick up with this mention of Solomon. For the couple in the song, their wedding day was the biggest day of their life. Solomon, however, had many wedding days due to the sheer abundance of his foreign wives. When we read the Old Testament, we discover that all these weddings led to Solomon's downfall. All those wives turned his head away from God and the joy God wanted him to experience. Solomon's weddings gradually became empty of meaning and eventually caused him pain. So this poor rural couple, they may seem insignificant compared to mighty King Solomon, but what the text is trying to point out is that their simple, single-minded and faithful love is so much greater than what Solomon experienced. In verse 11, we read that on Solomon's wedding day, his heart rejoiced, but we know that joy did not last. Whereas because this couple are committing totally and exclusively to one another, they will know joy this day and for many more days to come. A humble couple getting married for the right reasons may seem to have less than a flamboyant royal family, but actually they will soon discover that they have so much more. In verse 1 of chapter 4, the image of the song suddenly changes. If the inclusion about Solomon is the couple looking forward to their own big day, suddenly we reach the moment where the groom sees his bride for the first time. The wedding is now intimate, and we know this is the case because from now on he refers to her as my bride rather than my beloved. So what is the one thing that this next section of the song wants to communicate? Well, it is beauty. Sheer physical beauty. Alongside saying that every bride is a princess on their wedding day, people also say that every bride is beautiful. And that, of course, is very true. But that beauty has very little to do with dress or the makeup, despite all the money that is thrown at those things. The beauty of a bride on her wedding day comes from her knowing that she is loved. More than that, because she knows she's been chosen by her lover above all others. Her prince has found something special in her that he wishes to cherish forever. On her wedding day, that something special sparkles out of every pore of her bride's being. Her beauty dazzles the guests and intoxicates the groom. As I stood at the front of church a few weeks ago, I could see all this take place as Anna walked down the aisle. I could see the smile rise on every guest's face as she walked past. And as for Andrew, he was so desperate to see her, he could not help but turn round from the front. When he did finally catch sight of her, he could not take his eyes off of her. And that is the way it should have been. So don't let people you know put off a wedding because they cannot afford it. The beauty is not in the expensive dress or the makeup artist's bag of tricks. The beauty erupts from the heart below the surface. And that costs nothing. 
It really doesn't matter what the world thinks. When a couple are in love, their spouses are perfect in their eyes. Song of Songs wants us to know that this is not just sentimental claptrap. It is a true gift from God. He designed us to appreciate the beauty of our lovers in this way. And God does not want mention of this reserved for just the wedding day. He wants lovers to keep praising the beauty of their spouse throughout their married lives. So as chapter 4 begins, the groom sees his bride for the first time at their wedding, but immediately he is faced with a challenge. The bride is wearing a veil, verse 2. She therefore cannot be fully seen. In many ways, it's because of the veil that the groom erupts into the song that he does. In verses 1 to 7, he exclaims aloud a few verses of poetry extolling her beauty. Because of the veil, the groom must sing only using partial sight. The rest of his description is made up from memory and excited imagination. But what we should notice is that the portrait he paints is a flawless image, for he truly adores her. As you read verses 1 to 7, don't try to push the metaphors too far. Her hair is like goats, not because it smells like the wild goats on Isla, but because it bounds down to her shoulders and so on. Just understand how wrapped up he is in her beauty. Notice how he praises her from the top of her head, moving down her body. Eyes, hair, teeth, mouth, neck and breasts. At her breasts, he then brings his outburst of praise to a close. Why? Because that's all he knows of her at this stage. He hasn't seen any more yet, so it would not be right to imagine. This is a celebration of beauty without sex. He appreciates her without the need for self-gratification. He is giving her praise for her benefit, not his own. But of course, his finishing this journey down the body at her breast is also a tantalising tease. We would all like to know how the description ends, but only he gets to see that. This is part of the exclusivity of marriage, and soon he'll get to survey the rest of her body for himself. Oh, what ecstasy comes in private delight. Here then lies the reason that women wear a veil on their wedding day. Yes, it protects their timidity. The average young woman is not used to being the centre of attention. Many a blush needs to be spared. But most of all, it's a final barrier. As the wedding begins, the bride is still inaccessible in a way. She is reserved for her husband. Only he gets the full unveiling. So in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 4, this veiled bride appears. And suddenly the Song of Songs is full of an air of mystery. It's tantalising and seductive and it brings the groom to the edge of rapture. But notice this, for it's really important. This part of the song then goes on to tell us who is in control of that long-awaited unveiling. And despite what society might like to tell us, it is not the man. It is the woman who is fully in control. Verses 8 to 15 speak of love as a succulent fruit, full and ripe and ready to be picked. But the garden which holds the fruit is locked and the groom knows it is the woman who holds the key. It is she that decides to unlock. And as we hit verse 16 of the song, that moment suddenly arrives. 
If you remember back to the two previous passages in the Song of Songs, they both ended with the same verse of instruction. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. As we read those verses, both times we saw that they were a warning about premature sexual expression in a relationship. Sex too early can stop the secure bedrock required for a lasting marriage being put in place. But notice that here, those words never come. As this scene comes to an end, we know full well that this is the time for sex, and it is to be enjoyed in all its glory. As the evening winds start to blow, the woman throws her locked garden open with an urgent cry of desire. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. As the man receives this prized permission, he responds. The hunger that he has built up for his lover over the period of their betrothal is about to be met. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is the climax of the wedding day, the heady pinnacle of intimacy. Notice again something important here. As the groom exults in the sexual experience, he uses very particular words. He refers to his lover as mine again and again. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. This is not some patriarchal male ownership model. The song has just stressed that it is the woman and the woman alone who chooses to unlock her garden. Rather, this is the secret as to why married sex is the best. When you are married, you have a partner who is more concerned for your pleasure than you are for your own. And when that is true on both sides, sex can be electrically exciting. So instead of the warning about not arousing love before it so desires, this part of the song ends with a great affirmation from the girl's friends for their lovemaking. They encourage the newly married couple to continue and drink in the full enjoyment. Sex within marriage then is good and wholesome, right and proper. It is the natural consummation of two people's love for one another. There should be no shame, no restraint, just complete and happy abandonment. For all this is held within the truly safe place of unending covenant commitment. So now we hopefully understand what all the poetry of our passage means. But as we have done for every sermon in this series, we're going to finish by doing two things. First, we're going to draw some practical wisdom from this book to help us in our relationships today. Then we're going to briefly name a key principle in this passage that will help us all whether we're in a relationship with another or not. So let's start with some practical wisdom. I wonder how many times you have heard a sermon on sex in church. Let me tell you, I never have. And the danger with this is that we can end up with some pretty strange ideas. So the wisdom I want us to take away from this passage is that this appreciation of beauty, this feeling of desire, the activity of sex is all very good. In fact, it's nothing less than a gift from God. God is not looking down from heaven thinking, goodness me, I wonder what those people will get up to next. 
It was God that invented it. He is pleased with it. Our God is the God who delights in giving pleasure and satisfaction to his people. Sexuality is part and parcel of the human experience God made for us. All couples need to be reminded of this at times. Let us delight in the beauty of our spouse. Let us remember to tell them how beautiful they are, that they are perfect in our eyes. And let us not put off intimate connection in this way for too long. Enjoying sex is not a sin. In fact, it helps continue to glue our relationship together. And apparently, we have the best sex of our lives in our late 60s. So there's something for many of us to look forward to. But notice that we've had to wait until a long way through the song to get to this. And that is the opposite of how sex is perceived in today's world. Sadly, sex is now considered an easily accessible commodity which can be purchased or partaken in voyeuristically. That is a damaging perversion of God's gift. Song of Song shows us that sex is a delight only within the exclusive bond of self-giving love. For there we are held safe and secure. Of course, it's easy for us as Christians to just hammer the world in this regard. But perhaps a more productive approach would be for us to use our energy to passionately celebrate God's gift to us in its proper context of marriage, rather than just condemning the sin that takes place outside of it. That then just leaves us our final key principle to take away. Song of Songs has just celebrated a wonderfully grand wedding. And we have said that the public nature of a wedding is really important. The couple want all to see their love, so it's never doubted or denied, but rather upheld and supported. In the Bible, God speaks of his love for us in the same way. In fact, the Bible speaks of God's relationship with us, his people, as a marriage. In a marriage relationship, a couple are bound to each other by covenant commitment. They will love through thick and thin. They will never let go. They will forgive and forgive and forgive again. They will seek to help their spouses to truly flourish, often putting them before themselves to achieve this. In the Bible, we're told that this is how God loves us, with covenant commitment. He is our God and we are his people and so it will be for all eternity. In the New Testament, it tells us how God announced this covenant publicly. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross to forgive us our sin, all could see him hanging there. As John wrote, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Paul took this further. He described Christ's actions for us as the public declaration of marriage. After speaking of the cross in Ephesians 5, he writes, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And then Revelation concludes with the promise that the end of the age will come with Jesus coming to earth to claim his bride, the church. In Revelation 19, we read of feasting with Jesus at his wedding supper. So whoever we are listening to this, whether we're married or not, let us remember that God's love for us is utterly rock solid. It is faithful, unending, and through it he is working for our good. God loves you and he loves me, and he has proclaimed it publicly for all to see at the cross. 
just as a couple do on their wedding day. I hope this reminder of God's great love for us is an encouragement to us all as we continue to journey through these difficult times.